Good morning again. We're going to be uh, looking at Acts chapter 7 today, verses 1 through 8. So go ahead and turn there. It's a text where it's the beginning of Stephen's response to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders, um, and really his message to them about what he believes. Last week we saw that he was arrested and that there were false witnesses put forward against Stephen. Uh, we're going to be looking at his response to the leaders today and then all the way through Easter Sunday, which is March 31st. And so uh, we'll be working through this um, chapter 7 for the next weeks. But go ahead and um, stand if you are able and follow along. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses of chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would, who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is truth. We're grateful that you've entrusted it to us. And we really, Lord, we really do want to know you through it. And so we ask that you'd help us, Lord, um, that our hearts would be attentive to who you are to the great story that you have um, written, uh, a story of redemption, of grace, of love, of mercy uh, that is ultimately displayed and fulfilled in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so help us, Lord, to look to Jesus throughout this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So go ahead and have a seat. Okay, so there have been accusations made against Stephen, and most if not all of those accusations were lies. They had false witnesses who were put forward to say things that Stephen was doing that he wasn't necessarily doing. But Stephen is being accused of things here that could lead to him being executed, depending on how things continue. I'm going to remind us this each week, or I'm going to attempt to remind us of this each week as we go through chapter 7, but I want to review what we know about Stephen before we get into the verses just briefly. What is, what is the text, what does Luke tell us in writing the text about this man, Stephen? First of all, Stephen is a man with a good reputation. Also, he is full of the Spirit and therefore of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It tells us that Stephen is 
full of wisdom, that he is full of grace, and that he is full of power. Remember last week I mentioned that those things that we know about Stephen are what should help us in our perception of and understanding of how we read and what he says in this chapter of chapter 7 and and how he makes his defense. Verse 1 here, the high priest said, are these things so? That's interesting, maybe for you, but if you consider the culture that this is, is written in and written about, maybe you'd think in a culture like this that Stephen wouldn't, wouldn't even get a chance to speak. But he's given this opportunity, and really he's given the floor, he's given the opportunity to speak for himself. The high priest is Caiaphas, and he intervenes here in the proceedings and all of these things that are being said about Stephen, and he addresses Stephen directly and asks him to respond to these accusations of blasphemy against the temple and and of the law of Moses. Verse 2, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So Stephen begins by asking the people who are there to listen to him. Hear me. Listen to what I'm saying. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of wisdom, grace, and power. And he's confident and able to give an account of his belief. What he really does believe and what he really is saying to people. What he's speaking and preaching when he's out in among the people. Specifically, his belief in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he refers to the members of the Sanhedrin as fathers and the rest of the people there as brothers or as fellow Jews. We're going to see over the course of this chapter that Stephen is telling them the story of God. He begins... The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. You notice, Stephen doesn't just dismiss the charges. He doesn't stand up and say, these people are liars. He tells them the story of God. He's confident in the story of God. He's not afraid to speak for himself and explain what he believes, and therefore what he's actually saying to people. And what we're going to see is that Stephen is telling the story of God that they knew. But he's trying to get them to understand it in the way that it was always meant to be understood. It was always headed somewhere. And that where it was headed is new creation. New kingdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Nehemiah chapter 9, the people are reading the story of God, recounting His mighty works. And it says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 9, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made, him, made with him the covenant to give to his offspring 
the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you've kept your promise, for you are righteous. You go to Psalm 104 or 105, and you see the same uh, thing happening, this recounting of the long history of Israel. So this is not new what Stephen is doing here. He's recounting the story of God. And yet, he's wanting, and he's wanting us, he's wanting them to do that in a way to tell the story in a way that it was intended, or in the way that it was intended. We know that the Israelites, those that, that Stephen's speaking to here in this room, have a a narrow view. They have a limited view of God's story, which was a more political one. That's why the, um, the disciples expected, anticipated, Jesus was going to establish his kingdom and, and, and take out the Romans right then and there. In their mind, it was very political. Stephen's trying to help them see how how it was always pointing towards the person of Jesus and His kingdom. He says, the God of glory appeared. So Stephen's beginning the story where it ought to begin, with God. It's all, it always has and always will be about God. This story of Scripture is all about God. It's his story, and it's his kingdom. And from the beginning, he comes to his people, people that he chose. People he set apart from all others to show how the world will be made right. And that's the story that Stephen is telling here. We, we live in a world that is not just affected by sin, it's, it's literally marred by sin. Sin has corrupted the world. God is not an absent or distant father in that who neglects his children. He's, he's set on making things right. And so he appears to Abraham. He did this. He appeared to Abraham, it says, Stephen says here, when he lived in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, why does Stephen mention that? Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, is the place where Abraham was raised. Genesis 12.1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So God called Abraham to leave his land and his relatives and to go to a land that would be revealed later. Imagine that. Verse 4 continues, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So Abraham is obedient to God. He left the land where he had lived and settled in Haran, and then eventually God moves him to what Stephen refers to as this land, which we know is Canaan. And God's promise to Abraham that there would be 
and land to live in was fulfilled hundreds of years later. Just imagine this, okay? If Abraham is called by God to go to this place that he will reveal to him, he makes this promise to him, but the promise is not fulfilled specifically to Abraham while he's alive. It's fulfilled hundreds of years later. Under the leadership of Joshua, when the people of Israel moved into the promised land. But Abraham is called to leave the country that he knew to go to one that he did not know. To people in a culture that he didn't know. So Stephen's trying to get them to see this story begins with Abraham. It's with Abraham that God begins to unfold the way in which he's going to make all things right in this broken world. Abraham is called out to be different, to be distinct, to leave the home that he knew to go and be a part of a new land. He's set apart by God. And it goes on in verse 5. Yet... He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, this is possibly the most important verse in this section in understanding God's plan and what Stephen is marking off for these religious leaders to help them understand rightly the story of God. Abraham never saw the land himself. God gave Abraham a promise. Not the land, a promise. He never owned the land that God led him to dwell in. Not even, Stephen says, a foot of it. And yet he believed. He believed God. He obeyed God. But not just that. It wasn't just that he didn't receive the land. The promise that God made to Abraham, that his descendants would receive this great inheritance, this land of Canaan, was made to Abraham while he's married to Sarah, but while they are not able to have children. And they're getting old. And God makes this promise to them, or to him. Just imagine this. Imagine the story that Stephen is painting here. From the beginning, he's reminding them of the way in which God unfolded his plan of redemption. And from the beginning, it had a lot of question marks. It wasn't clear to Abraham. It's not a clear picture. Abraham's called and God made a promise to him but he could not have ever imagined how it could come true. Stephen doesn't get into that, but we we see in the story in Genesis how there's this debating with God because I don't have a kid. That word offspring that Stephen uses here, what in the world was childless Abraham to do with a word like that in a promise that he couldn't fathom. And yet Abraham believed God. 
And we learn from Paul and the Lord in the Old Testament. It was counted, it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. Eckhart Schnabel, if you're looking for a name to name your child, um, writes concerning this verse. It fits the concern of Luke, who assures his Christian readers that Israel's privileges, among which the promised land figures prominently, while God-given, are not as pivotal as Jews traditionally believe. In other words, he's saying Stephen is trying to help the Jewish leaders see that Yahweh's plan was bigger than they had believed, bigger than they had taught, bigger than they had enforced or demanded others to believe, bigger than a piece of land, bigger than a physical temple. God was writing a story about himself. And he would reveal that through the offspring of Abraham that was to come in the flesh. God himself, Jesus, the Son of God. That's, that's where the arrow is beginning to point. And as we consider the, the difficulty that this must have been for Abraham in receiving this promise... Abraham's faith is an example for us. It's an example of one who believed God even when he had nothing but God's word that would guarantee the fulfillment of the promise. He had no physical evidence. Verses 6 and 7 continue here. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they will come out and worship me in this place. Again, imagine getting this as part of the promise of inheritance. God, God gives Abraham a, a little bit of a hint. He informs Abraham that it's going to take a long time for his descendants to, to possess this land, this land that they had been promised. And in that time, these descendants would live as resident aliens in a foreign land whose inhabitants would enslave them and mistreat them. It's going to be really, really hard for a really long time. And the story, the promise, isn't going to be easy or pretty all the time. And the first part of these, of these verses is a quote from Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. In Genesis 15, it speaks of the 400 years specifically, but it doesn't say which land will be, um, which land is being referred to. We, we know now, looking back, that it's Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, 40 tells us that the Jewish people were in Egypt for 430 years. And so apparently as slaves, they were there for 400 years as Joseph's influence had worn, had worn off. Exodus 1, 8 says there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so the influence that Joseph had there in that land is gone. 
But God, Stephen says, promises to judge the nation that enslaves the Jewish people. He says, I will judge the nation that they serve, and after that, they'll come out and worship me in this place. And we know, looking back, that his judgment toward Egypt arrived as the ten plagues and the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. So God tells Abraham that there will be a long time before the promise is fulfilled and that his descendants are going to suffer greatly during that time. For centuries, they're going to suffer. But eventually, they'll be delivered and will worship God. And that's why Israel was chosen, to worship God. It's what he desires. It's what Stephen desires as he delivers this message. But he's painting this picture of the need for faith in God. Again, imagine being Abraham. Imagine him receiving this promise that he's not really physically ever going to taste. He's never going to experience the blessing and joy of it on this earth. But he believes. In the midst of all of the confusion of it, he believes. And in verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Stephen focuses in on this great event that we learn about in Genesis 15. It's where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in, in his covenant making, he gives him a sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. But he makes this covenant with Abraham and tells him, way before it happens, that his descendants are going to be enslaved by a foreign nation but they're going to be rescued. They're going to be brought out. That there will be an exodus where they are led out of darkness and into their inheritance. And that story, that at least part of that story, is so emblematic of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Of course, there's this foreshadowing of, of Jesus, the one who will lead his people out of darkness into their inheritance with him. But even more, how will he do that? And Jesus bearing the weight of the promise is foreshadowed in this covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 15. In fact, go ahead and, and turn there. Twenty-one verses. So let's just let me read through it, and you follow along. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And, and if you're new um, to reading the Bible, Abraham is renamed, or Abram is renamed Abraham later, post covenant. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, 
Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, what happens here in this chapter? The Lord reaffirms His promise to Abraham then tells him to go through this ritual, a part of this covenant-making ritual in ancient Jewish culture. And honestly, pretty strange-looking, sounding to us. These animals that the Lord tells him to go get were, were literally cut in half. And the two parties who would be making covenant with each other would pass between the carcasses of the animals as the covenant is made, as they make promise to whatever it is that they're promising to each other. And the picture of this way of making covenant was as two parties passed through these animals who have been cut in half, it's as if they're saying to one another, so be it to me if I break this covenant that I'm making with you. In other words, may this be happen, or may this happen to me. May I be torn apart. May, may I be killed if I break this covenant. But what happens in Genesis 15 is unique to what happened in most of the covenant ceremonies or rituals. What happens in 15 is different. They don't both walk through the carcasses. Only God does. 
And that's incredibly significant. It, it, it's why Paul zeroes in on Genesis 15 multiple times in his writing, in Romans uh, 4, in, in, in Galatians 3 and 4, because God goes through himself. He knows that Abraham or Moses or Joshua or any other human being cannot keep their end of a covenant. But God is a covenant-keeping God, and so God goes through alone by himself on behalf of himself and on behalf of Abraham. He's saying, so be it to me if either of us break this covenant. Well, guess what? Abraham's side of the covenant never stood a chance. It was always bound to be broken because humans are sinful and broken. We're selfish. We're forgetful. But God makes this promise, and He meant what He promised. And so an offspring would come, and that's what Paul emphasizes in his writing, an offspring would come just like God promised Abraham who would be torn apart, just like those carcasses, who would be killed, whose blood would be shed, because the covenant was broken because of sin. And he would do that on behalf of Abraham, and he would do that on behalf of all of humanity. That's what Stephen wants the religious leaders to see, to know. Stephen's saying, you might think I don't believe the Scriptures. But I, I do wholeheartedly. I believe them wholeheartedly, and I want you to believe them wholeheartedly, and I want you to know the story that God's been telling all along that's aiming towards, pointing towards His Son, Jesus, who takes on Himself the breaking of covenant that is our wrong. God's story has always been headed toward Jesus and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what Stephen wants these followers of the law to know. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together remembering this. That Jesus is the one who fulfilled the covenant. That Jesus is the one who, although the covenant was broken on our end, willingly takes the punishment for it. That his body was broken. That his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, he says. And he gives, this, this, gives us this means of remembering that we have a, a way of rehearsing what we believe, that we rehearse together, we believe Jesus' body was broken for us. And we believe that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, and that apart from Jesus, we have no hope. And Paul says as often as we do that, we proclaim that together. We proclaim we believe this 
We believe in Jesus. We believe that he died and we believe that he's coming again. And so as we prepare to do that, as you're dismissed and you come forward, you receive the bread, you receive the cup, and you go back to your seats as we sing together our love for Jesus, let's remember rightly his body was broken. He made covenant with us and never broke it. And yet his body was broken. He made covenant with us and never broke it. And yet his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we, as we remember and as we prepare to take it together after we sing, let's rejoice in the truth of the gospel that we're set free because of what Jesus has done, not at all because of anything that we could possibly do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good, Lord, and everything you do is good. And we are undeserving of your love, of your mercy. We're undeserving of Jesus and his sacrifice. But we praise you and we thank you. We ask for your help, Lord. Even as we come and receive the bread and the cup and we, we hold it and we sing together, Lord, and then we proclaim together the Lord's death, our belief in, in what you accomplished on the cross, Lord, help us. Help us to believe, help us to rejoice, to be thankful for who you are and what you have done and what you have called us and made us to be. In Christ's name, amen.